0: Hi, my name is Neil Bell, and I, along with Adam Wood, authored the first book to be published by Mango Books, Sir Howard Vincent's Police Code, 1889. Some of this talk was laid out for a presentation Adam and I did at Scotland Yard in April 2016. However, before I go into the code, as it is affectionately known, it's important to lay down some detail regarding the metropolitan city of London police orphanage. This for reasons I hope shall become clear later on. Okay, I'm going to start by telling you a little something about the formation of the orphanage. When Adam and I were conducting our research for the Police book, we asked the Board of Management of the Orphans if there was anything we weren't allowed to talk about, and we were told just two things. How much Queen Victoria paid towards the fund, and how one of the nurses gave syphilis to two of the boys. So we won't be talking about that. It was a sad fact of life in the 18th and 19th centuries that the majority of working men were forced to seek employment in dangerous environments. Officers of the Metropolitan Police fell into this category, constantly being at risk from assault or attack, or finding themselves in perilous situations such as fire or tackling runaway horses and carts. The first officer of the Met to be killed on duty was P.C. Joseph Grantham, who died just nine months after the formation of the force in 1829, this after being kicked in the temple whilst trying to break up a fight. P.C. Grantham's wife had given birth to twins the previous day, and they, along with so many children of policemen in the future, will grow up as part of a family struggling to make ends meet after the loss of the main wage earner. Many faced the reality of fracture and dispersal into the workhouse. There was no provision for families of fallen police officers, and in fact a total of 77 metropolitan policemen would lose their lives in the line of duty before something was done. When Lieutenant Colonel Edmund Henderson became Commissioner of the Met in 1869 following the death of Sir Richard Main he was determined to set up some form of support for the families left behind. The seed had perhaps been planted by Sir Richard Mayne in September 1867 when along with commissioners of other forces around the country he had actually attended the opening of the first police orphanage, the home for destitute orphans of policemen at Brighton. This home, run by two sisters, appears to have been a small affair, caring for 28 children and as such perhaps it was deemed unsuitable for the needs of the Metropolitan Police. Henderson quickly formulated his plan for a Metropolitan Police Orphanage and this was announced in police orders on 19th of January 1870. A building named Fortescue House on London Road Twickenham was purchased and it opened its doors on the October of that year when 20 children became it its first residents. Admission was confined to children orphaned after the 1st of January 1870 and limited to two from each family. In addition, only children of officers who subscribed to the fund were admitted which no doubt saw the number of subscribers increase as a kind of insurance. The City of London Police were invited to join the fund a year later and their name was formally changed to the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage on the 2nd of February 1871. Within three years, 115 orphans were eligible for admission to the orphanage and it became clear that Fortescue House was too small. In 1874, Wellesley House on Hampton Road to Wickenham was purchased and opened on the 25th of September that year. It would be the orphanage's home for the next 63 years. Initially providing accommodation for 200 children, Wellesley House was later extended to house of the 60. But by 1878 there were 1,000 orphan children and obviously not enough space to accommodate them. In 1883, it was decided to award a compassionate allowance of £2.12 per child to those who could not be accommodated at the orphanage. And within six years, 669 children had received this benefit while under the care of their families at home. The preparatory school consisted of children aged between 7 and 10, so around 20 pupils taught the basic subjects such as reading, arithmetic, writing and grammar. A typical day for the older children would consist of half-hour lessons on Bible reading, history, arithmetic and geography, followed by science, bookkeeping and art. In addition to these subjects, the girls were taught more domestic pursuits, such as needlework and cookery, whilst the boys got to play in the woodwork shop. All the children were given a daily physical exercise and here you can see in the front row far right a young Adam Wood being put through his paces. The children ate a full if not particularly varied diet Monday's menu will be porridge and bread for breakfast, cold roast beef or mutton with potatoes and bread and for dinner and bread and butter with milk for tea. The diet seemed to agree with the children. For in 1889, just 80 cases of illness across 265 children were reported for the entire year, with Mr. Arthur Fox, dentist to the orphanage, reporting a total of 86 extractions and 104 fillings for the same period. Upon reaching the maximum age of 15, the children were required to leave the orphanage and they were given help finding a suitable job, with many of the boys unsurprisingly joining the Metropolitan Police. Others emigrated to countries including Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and the United States, their passages paid by the Board of Managers. Each young man or woman leaving the orphanage received a leaving certificate recording their behaviour and achievements, such as this one for Alfred March who spent six years at the orphanage in the 1880s. In addition, those leaving were also given a trunk. This contained a number of items designed to help get them started in the outside world. A close-up of the label pasted to the lid of this trunk, made out to one William Dixon, shows the list of items supplied. Each boy received the following. Two suits, one overcoat, three day shirts, two pairs of pyjamas, four pairs of socks, two vests, two pairs of underpants, six handkerchiefs, six collars, two neckties, two pairs of boots, one pair of slippers, one hat, one cap, one brush and comb, and finally, one toothbrush. In the bottom right hand corner of this label is a note written by William Dixon saying, Made by me in the carpentry shop, which seems to indicate that the boys constructed their own trunks. By the early part of the 20th century, those children who had entered the orphanage in its early days were now mature adults. Hundreds of boys had passed through the orphanage in the 40 years since it opened, and by the time the first world war broke out many were eligible for army service in fact almost 300 former met and city police orphans did their bit with 21 sadly losing their lives this panel recording their names is now on display at the orphan fund's offices in Putney. a war memorial hospital was built in the grounds of the orphanage and was opened by the prince of wales in 1923. in 1921 the police pensions act was passed probably hastening the closure of the orphanage. A widow of a constable or a sergeant who died after completing 5 years' service was entitled to a pension of £30 per annum with an allowance of £10 for each child up to a maximum of three children per family. All but the very poor were thus able to keep their children at home and in 1933, out of 650 orphans, only 277 were actually accommodated in the orphanage. The following year was 181. And on the 31st of December 1936, there were just 114 children in the orphanage, with 406 outside receiving compassionate allowance. As a result of these declining numbers, the Board of Managers took the decision to close the orphanage, and this happened on the 31st of July 1937. The very next day, successor, the Metropolitan and City Police Orphans Fund, came into being. An allowance of £36 per year would be paid to the mothers of all eligible children. In the course of its 67 year existence the orphanage had accommodated, schooled and funded 2,807 boys and girls. Wellesley House was taken over by Shaftesbury Homes and renamed Fortescue House School with most of the boys in the orphanage at that time staying on to continue their education. Wellesley House was slowly demolished over the following 40 years until by the time this photograph was taken in June 1984 only the building, which had once been the War Memorial Hospital, remained. In recent years, it too was demolished, and the site is now occupied by a Catholic primary school. Much of the furniture of Wellesley House was removed to the Fund's offices in Putnam, including the boardroom table, which is still used at management meetings? The building, which answers the Fund's headquarters, is now the sole property owned by the Fund, and is run by former police officers Peter Smythe and Malcolm Cooper. Also held at Putney offices are the archives of the fund, including minute books, yearly accounts, and a vast range of related artifacts dating back to the 1870s, such as the silver inkwell shown here, which was donated to the board by Sir Howard Vincent after he resigned as director of CR, head of CRD in 1884. By 1970, 100 years after Sir Edmund had founded the orphanage, some 13,535 children had benefited from either accommodation or financial support. From the compassionate allowance, a total of £1,369,320 was paid to 5,243 widows in respect of 10,728 orphan children. Today, the Orphan Fund supports nearly 250 children and young adults each year, continuing to rely on donations and subscriptions from serving police officers and kind-hearted members of the public. Some of you may at this stage be wondering what the Met and City Police Orphans Fund has to do with the police code. I shall explain. Firstly, by going into the code's creation. The creation of the police code has its roots in the scandal that shut Scotland Yard in 1877. The great uh, fraud scandal trial exposed corruption amongst the elite of the detective force, when fraudsters Harry Benson... William Kerr, sought to have their sentences reduced by revealing that several officers of Scotland Yard's detective department had been in their pay. The scandal, and subsequent trial, which was sensationally known the Trial of the Detectives, led to a huge mistrust of the police and saw the dismantling of the detective department. The Home Office sought a review into reorganising the detective aspect of the Met and gave instruction to a young barrister, Sir Charles Edward Howard Vincent, to study and report on how the detective department was structured and operated in Paris. La Sourette, as the Parisian detective force was known, had a reputation of being the best in the world at the time. The City of London police regularly sent their detectives over to Paris so to learn the latest techniques and technological advancements. The fact that the Met and the City of London police utilised photography during the Jack the Ripper murders of 1888 was as as a, a result of study and implementing procedures laid down by their Parisian counterparts. Howard Vincent's report was comprehensive and was laid out to the Home Office early in 1878. So impressed were the Home Office with the 28-year-old's report that they offered Howard Vincent the role of director of a new detective team named Criminal Investigations Department, or CID for short. He readily accepted, becoming the Met's first director of CID in April 1878. Howard Vincent worked exhaustively for the next six years, never forgetting how he came into his position. It is because of his awareness for the public accountability and transparency that he decided to compile a manual which would aid policemen of all ranks, give reason to the judiciary on procedural matters, and provide guidance to the public relating to the legalities and how the police operated. The police code hit the bookshelves in the summer of 1881. It was described by the Western Mail as a manual of criminal law designed especially for the members of the police force, though it appears to be well calculated to be of service to the justices of the peace. It is founded in great part upon the General Orders of the Metropolitan Police and the instruction books of several constabulary forces. This new book, A Police Code and General Manual on the Criminal Law for the British Empire, to give it its full title, was envisioned by... Howard Vincent to be a one stop legal book for all people on all matters connected to two main topics the day to day maintenance of order and the dealing with crime. Entirely funded by Howard Vincent himself, the main part of the book was an alphabetic listing of the constable's duty interspersed with numerous scenarios and advice on how constables should deal with those situations. With each entry lifted directly from police orders, meaning each serving constable should already be familiar with the book's contents. Matani was the peace code a handy reference for a constable to refresh his memory. Its availability to all meant that the public could now understand what action a constable could undertake and the legal reasoning behind it. It therefore became a valued source within the legal environment. It meant a constable now had to be extremely precise in the execution of his duty, chiefly out of fear of prosecution due to this widening knowledge with regards to what he could and could not do. A publication of a police code was a step toward what we Term today as transparency, a tool which enabled the public to question the police accountability during times of dubious police action. With an address to constables added in 1882 by the Honourable Sir Henry Hawkins, who, whilst as Queen's Counsel, successfully prosecuted Arthur Orton in the Titchborn claimant case, the code became a global sensation. Almost every force in the world obtained copies. New recruits in Japan, for example, were instructed on the art of fencing, wrestling and boxing, and the police code. Drunkenness was, and still is, the main cause of petty crime, particularly with regards to misdemeanour of assault. During the Victorian period, alcohol was cheap and healthier to consume than water, and as we know, highly addictive. This resulted in an 1889 annual police return by H Division Whitechapel, which revealed that some 2,300 people had been apprehended for drunkenness that year alone. The code covers Drink numerous times throughout its pages and even gives guidance on drunkenness with specific vocations such as cabmen and postmen. The Nottingham Evening Post of the third of april nineteen twenty three reported a court exchange regarding drunkenness and the police code when it stated Can a man who remain in full possession of his faculties but loses the control of his legs be said to be drunk? was the problem presented to Magistrate H. G. Roth at Lambeth Police Court yesterday when a Vauxhall labourer was charged with being drunk and incapable. A constable said the man's brain was clear, but his legs were giving way. Some people get drunk in their heads and some in their legs, he said. Magistrate Ruth stated, The liquor, of course, goes to a man's stomach and not to his head or legs. I want to know whether a man whose brain is perfectly clear is drunk. Is there any definition in the police code? Police Inspector Kemp, I don't think there is. Accused, I am bad on my legs and when I get a glass of ale I'm even worse. Magistrate Ruth, to the accused, I think you may be said to be overcome by drink. You will be fined five shillings. It seems that many, including Magistrate Ruth, will turn to the code for an explanation on on almost any matter, including the medical conundrum and how the brain, or more importantly in this case the legs, will be affected by alcohol. At dinner parties, Harold Vinson would often gleefully recall a tale of a constable patrolling the clubland of London's West End when he came across a drunken man supporting himself against a gas lamp post. The constable engaged the man in conversation with the intent of moving him along. As time progressed and the drunk did not move, the constable became increasingly frustrated at the drunk's general unwillingness to cooperate, and this frustration turned to tetchiness with the man propped up against the lamp post. Noting the policeman's irritation, the drunk began fumbling in his pocket and produced a small red-covered book from which he began to quote and, with the vigour of a preacher delivering a sermon, read the following passage to the perplexed constable. Whatever duty you may be called upon to perform, keep a curb on your temper. An angry man is unfit for duty as a drunken one. The passage was a direct quote from Sir Henry Hawkins' address to police constables, found on page 11 of the A Police Code. A very, The very book the drunk was holding. Howard Vincent's vision of a tome to be used by all was never more so beautifully illustrated. Along with guidance on execution of day-to-day duties and the perils of not adhering to the requirements of a constable, the code would also be referred to by constables looking for direction on the more, more, more obscure. Although a rare crime during the Victorian era, murder naturally caught the public's attention. The Code gives instruction with regards to management and investigation in a murder case, and we can cite the Jack the Ripper case of 1888 as a fine example. Howard Vincent's guidance on how to initially handle the murder investigation can be found within two entries entitled Dead Bodies and Murder. And we can see how this advice manifests into the action upon the discovery of many of Jack the Ripper's victims. In 1884, Howard Vincent left CRD to pursue a career in politics. He had, throughout his policing career and beyond, been a keen financial and active supporter of the Met and City Orphanage. In fact, at his wedding to Ethel Moffat in 1882, just a year after the first edition of the Police Code had been published, 40 boys and 40 girls from the Orphanage sat pride of place in the pews of St Peter's Church in London's Eaton Square. and Around them all sat MPs and other dignitaries. Sir so Charles Edward Howard Vincent died on the 7th of April 1908. It is here that one would assume his connection to the Met and City Police Orphan's Fund ended. It does not. In his will, Howard Vincent laid plans to secure the funding for the orphanage that, upon reprisal, survives till this day. He bequeathed the copyright of the Police Code to the Acting Assistant Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police with the desire that he and his successor would continue to have fresh editions published and that profits would be applied to the Metropolitan and City Police Orphanage. This secured a steady flow of money for the orphanage, which supplemented other donations and police subscriptions. The code ran until the outbreak of World War II, 1939, when hostilities and the need for paper elsewhere forced an end to its run. By then, other guidance books, such as Moriartes, had come to the fore. However, this wasn't the end for the code. In 2015, Adam Wood and I brought Sir Howard Vincent's police code back to life, with its cloth colour just as it was in 1889. We felt that it is a fascinating insight into the workings of the Metropolitan Police in the Victorian era, and of the era itself. A reliable tool for those who wish to study the crimes of the time and the social conditions of the period. Adam and I have also honoured the wishes of its creator, Sir Charles Edward Howard Vincent, of which he laid down in his Will of 1908, in that all profits from the sales of this particular book are also donated to the Orphans Fund. The tradition has been maintained. So, if you purchase a copy of the code, you are supporting the children of Fallen Met in the City of London Police Officers. Thank you very much.